before the break, we began to consider the seventh spiritual gift that's concerned with uh, distinguishing of spirits in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10 because we have that phrase to another distinguishing between spirits. So the seventh gift is related to the sixth gift, the gift of prophecy, since we say it is a guardrail for the gift of prophecy. Now the Greek word translated distinguishing in verse 12 should really be understood as distinguishing, that is, having the ability to evaluate and decide. Now, the word spirit, we looked at also, is translated from a Greek word with several meanings, and such as things like wind, breath, or that which animates or gives life to the body, or the immaterial part of a person. But in our verse, verse 10, it is used with the sense of a supernatural being that in, uh, in this case, since we have plural spirits, it refers to God, the Holy Spirit, and the created supernatural beings that are harmful to or antagonistic to God, that we call evil spirits. Now, so, we went on to look at the uh, fact that this evil spirits can hijack the voice, the vocal cord of a person to cause them to say things that they will not ordinarily say or know. So, we looked at the illustration of this where an evil spirit recognized and spoke to a man in the synagogue to identify Jesus Christ. We also looked at the case of the seven sons of Sceva, where a man with a spirit, evil spirit in him, spoke to them, saying more or less, I know Jesus, I know, I know about Paul, who are you? And he went ahead to beat up seven men, badly because he was empowered by an evil spirit. So, we indicated also that this gift is not the same as the general responsibility that's assigned to all believers of being able to distinguish false teachers and false prophets using criterion specified in First John chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 that we also looked at. Now, so, uh, we, after all that, we then moved to or began to introduce the, ten, the ninth, I mean, sorry, the eighth spiritual gift, which is related to speaking in tongues, as in First Corinthians chapter two, verse ten, when it says to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, or literally, as I gave you, to another kinds of tongues. So the, we indicated that that phrase to another indicates that not everyone speaks or has this gift of speaking in tongues, in spite of what some uh, people say or try to teach today. 
that the gift has caused so much problem today as it did in the church, in the local church of Corinth. Now we're, we're just going to go through right now, go through the gift of speaking in tongues because of the problem it causes. Or it caused at that time, the apostle devoted in almost the entire 14th chapter. And that's why we really deal with all the little ins and outs about speaking in tongues. But for now, it's just a gift that we're going to uh, be focusing on. Anyway, so the, as we, before the break, we indicated that the real problem with the issue of these tongues is how to understand the meaning of the word tongue in the New Testament scripture. And we said that it could mean that it boils down to whether we can take tongue to mean a foreign language or a spiritual language. And to begin to do all that, we said we need to look at then the key words that, the, uh, that is used in our verse in order to begin to uh, understand what the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. So we began looking at the word uh, different kinds, that expression different kinds, that is from a Greek word that we indicated can mean a nation, but before the break we said it can mean offspring. And to go to look at that, we cited Acts chapter 17, verse 28. And it is with that we begin our study uh, this second half. Acts 17, verse 28 reads, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own uh, poets have said, we are his offspring. Now that offspring is some expression of different kinds. Same Greek word. Now the word may mean family, as the word is used in Stephen's sermon, to describe Joseph's family that he eventually went up to Egypt with him in Acts chapter 7 verse 13. Acts chapter 7 verse 13. Acts chapter 7 verse 13 reads, On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. That word family is the same Greek word translated different kinds. Now the word may mean kind, as it is used to describe a class of demons that can only be expelled through prayer. As stated in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. There are uh, kinds of demons that uh, can only expel them by prayer. Mark chapter 9, verse 29. Mark chapter 9, verse 29 reads, He replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. It's a class of demons. That word kind refers to a class. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, the Greek word means kind, that is a category of things distinguished by some 
common characteristic or quality. So this means then that we have that which we can be distinguished by some characteristics when the apostle used the word tongues. We're dealing with something that there are certain characteristics that can be used to distinguish it. Actually, the word tongues though, is translated from a Greek word glos. I mean Greek word glosa. From where we get the Greek, I think the English word glossary. Uh, just if you remove the R-Y and just leave A there, you get the Greek word glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A, glossa. That means tongue. Anyway, the tongue, the meaning tongue may refer literally to a body part as an organ of speech, as that which was loose uh, to enable Zechariah to speak just before the naming of his son, John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, verse 64. Luke chapter 1, verse 64. Luke chapter 1, verse 64. It reads, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. And he began to speak, praising God. That's the Greek word glosa. Now, the, uh, figuratively though, tongue is used for split flames, split flames, as in Acts chapter 2, verse 3. When you open that Acts, uh, you put your marker on it, although I read the, the verse there and then still leave the marker there, because I go to one passage and I come right back to Acts. Acts chapter 2 verse 3 reads, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That tongues of fire, that's a split, it refers to uh, split flames. Now the word, the Greek word may mean language, unique to a people, as it is used by those from other nations that were present on the day of Pentecost to acknowledge hearing the disciples speak in their various languages the great things God has done when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, took place in Jerusalem at that day, on that day, I mean the day of Pentecost, as we read in Acts chapter 2, look at verse 11. Again, like I said, put your marker on it in that Acts, because I'm going to one passage and come right back to Acts. Verse 11 of Chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, 11 reads, Both Jews and converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our, in our tongues, in our own tongues. Now, to remove any misunderstanding of what tongue means in this passage, 
some of our modern English versions render the phrase instead of our tongues, they just simply say our languages. As we find, for example, in the New English Translation. I mean, there are others that did, but I just picked that one as an example. Now, it is in the sense of language then that tongue is used to describe different peoples of the nations that are redeemed as described in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 reads, And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, the English versions that are prone to literal translation, such as the authorized version or the King James version, or even the New American Standard Bible, they translated the word tongue instead of language. Here it says language, but it says tribe and language, but they say tribe and tongues, which, of course, is really language. Anyway, the Greek word may also mean ecstatic language, ecstatic language. That is, an utterance outside the normal patterns of intelligent speech and therefore requiring special interpretation as the word is used to describe those who received the Holy Spirit when Apostle Peter preached the gospel to colonials and those assembled in his house as we read in Acts chapter 10 verse 46. Acts chapter 10 verse 46. It is for they, for they had them, that's those who went with the apostle Peter, for they had them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said. Now, it is in the sense of ecstatic language that the word is used to describe one of the activities of those in Ephesus that received the Holy Spirit when our apostle Paul laid his hands on them as stated in Acts chapter 19 verse 6. Acts chapter 19 verse 6. It reads, when Paul placed his hands on them, 
The Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now the, these, the passages we have cited imply that in our passage of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10, the Greek word translated tongues could mean either ecstatic language, that is, an utterance having the form of language but requiring an, an inspired interpreter for an understanding of the content, or it refers to foreign unintelligible human utterances. Now these two uh, meanings imply that the apostle is concerned with either a spiritual language or a foreign language. A spiritual language or a foreign language. A foreign language that you don't know is unintelligible to you. It doesn't mean it doesn't make sense to another uh, who knows the language. But what we're saying is either here we're dealing with a spiritual language or a foreign language. Now to help also in interpreting what the apostle means, there are, we have to consider some few factors concerning what we have about tongues. There are a few factors given in the scripture that we need to consider to help us in our quest to interpret this gift of tongues. First, Speaking in tongues is an activity that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. The first reference to speaking in tongues is said to be according to what the Holy Spirit enabled to those involved to say. According to Acts chapter 2 verse 4. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Again, put your marker there. I'm going to return to the 12th chapter we're studying of 1 Corinthians and then come right back to this um, Acts chapter 2. It reads, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So it's the Holy Spirit that does that. Now, Apostle Paul, in the case, of course, of speaking in tongues, is a manifestation of the Spirit. Before he even mentioned it, this person was starting because that's really what's involved in what or the statement he made that preceded the list of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7. Go where we're starting, look at verse 7. Again, this is what he says. Now to each one the, end, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Notice manifestation of the Spirit. So that means since he mentioned gifts, the speaking of tongues is part of that manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Second, the first reference to speaking in tongues involved foreign languages unknown to the speakers but known to some other persons. Unknown to the speakers, but known to some other persons present. In Acts chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Acts 
verse 6 of Acts chapter 2 reads, When they had a sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? In other words, uh, that's a word to say they are uneducated. I just think that's what they describe. So that's why I say they are uneducated in the sense they, know, they don't know enough more than their own language. They, they're not really uh, educated in, at that time. He says, Then, how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Now, here are the native languages of people who came. He said, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Frugia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews, and converts to Judaism. Again, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own thoughts. Now, how will I put it? Suppose you traveled and you go, let's say, to China or India or some other parts where they don't speak English. And you know no one there knows English. And suddenly somebody starts speaking fluently in English. You'd be surprised, wouldn't you? That's what happened. Because they know these people are not educated, which means they can hardly know the correct way to use their own language, let alone the language of other people. And so to say that, for them to be hearing them talking, speaking, in their own languages was just amazing to them. Anyway, the Jews and the Gentiles though, uh, had gathered in Jerusalem certainly knew the common language of communication in Jerusalem at that time. So one wonders why the Holy Spirit chose to enable the, uh, the disciples to speak in languages of the other peoples. There was a, uh, what we call uh, lingua franca at that particular time. Like for most part of the world today, a common language is English. Most part, not everywhere, most part of the world. People in one, there's people in one nation, they don't, they have different languages in the same, in the same country. The only common language they all use is English. So that's a common language. So when these people gathered in Jerusalem, there was a common language that people use at that time. That's why these people from all over the uh, place can use, understand that common language. Suddenly, these people broke away from that common language. That's why they say, oh, we're hearing them in our own languages. So, why would that happen? Why did the Holy Spirit do that? Well, it's probably because that is the way the Holy Spirit 
wanted the hearers to recognize that he could enable people to speak a language they had not previously learned. That's the issue. Something they have never learned. Third, the tongue Apostle Paul mentioned in Corinth is unintelligible to the speakers as implied in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 14. Again I, I say that the tongue the apostle mentioned in Corinth is unintelligible to the speaker as implied here in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 14. Hold on to that uh, chapter 14. It is, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That means I'm praying. I don't know what I'm talking about. We, I mean, we'll, we'll study all that in detail when we get to the 14th chapter. But that, just to begin, you see, say, if I speak in tongue, and I, my spirit is praying, but I don't know what I'm talking about. So that's why I say it's unintelligible on the part of the speaker. However, in addition though, the tongue the apostle mentioned is unintelligible to the hearers, as implied in what he says about praising God, that involves tongue in the same First Corinthians chapter 14, look at verse 16. Verse 16. Verse 16. If you, he says, if you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving since he does not know what you're saying? You're praying in tongue, they know what you're saying. How can they say amen? So, this third factor though, that we stated seem to be contradicting or conflicting to the second because in the first, second one we said the speaker didn't know what he was saying but somebody knew what he was saying. Now the speaking in tongue on the day of Pentecost is something that we should explain so that we see there's no conflict between what Paul has said that we just made in the third fact uh, but then uh, we need to explain it so we see there's really no conflict. So the speaking in tongue on the day of Pentecost involved a larger audience that comprised of people from different nations. So it was inevitable that there were people who had their language being spoken by those the Holy Spirit gave utterances in different languages. However, the situation Apostle Paul mentioned takes place in a local church where it is conceived that people spoke one language and so the tongue the Holy Spirit gave will be unintelligible both to the speaker and hearers. 
Now against uh, here, the things, some of these things, I, I want you to pay attention, go home and go back and look at it. It's the general ignorance of Christians today is because we pastors and we are not taking time to really teach these things. Now those who, all they do is just all they talk about, let's say, speaking tongue, speaking tongue. They spend time just draining on people on that. So when you encounter them, they have, an, they have answers, which you don't, because you're not taught. You don't know anything about it. And so you, your tendency is to be antagonistic towards them, or resentful, or whatever it is. Put up your defenses. So even though this may not have an immediate application to you right now, you need to grasp what I'm teaching you. Because you never know when you have to run into people where you have to defend it. Give them a correct view of what it actually means. That's why these things are important. So my point is, although in case of Corinth, we have the same group of people who speak the same language. So, it would be surprising when they, somebody spoke in tongues become unintelligible to uh, people. So that's the situation that we have in Corinth. Now the point is further underscored by the fact that the objects targeted or addressed in tongues in the day of Pentecost and the local church in Corinth are different. In the day of Pentecost, the objects targeted were people from various nations that were present on that day. But in a local church, in this particular case in Corinth, that consisted of people with the same language, that is, the tongue then is, directly, is directed primarily to God. Primarily to God. That was so we know from that first Corinthians chapter fourteen, look at verse two. Again, like I said, uh, just showing you these verses can tell you when I say we will get by the grace of God as he says so, we we'll get to this the fourteenth chapter. That's why we live there with all the problems. But now you can see a little bit here and there. So you begin to get the concept that yes, it's in the fourteenth chapter that we'll deal with the problems. It says, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. Now, by the way, according to what the apostles stated in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 14 verse 16, when he said, if you are praising God with your spirit... Based on that, it can be surmising that tongue that is unintelligible to the speaker involves praising God. It wasn't just something, it involves praising God. Now, praising God involves saying something complimentary about Him, and so will have been a part of the utterance of those who spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost since they declared the wonderful works of God as we read in the passage that we cited previously. You don't need to go back there, but uh, I'll just remind you in Acts chapter 2, 
verse 11, again just listen, it says, But Jews and Je- uh, converts to Judaism, Christians and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So anyway, our explanation then of the apparent conflict between our, our second factor and the third enables us to recognize that speaking in tongues in the day of Pentecost is not a different phenomenon from what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that we're studying. Not a different phenomenon. Now we say this, <coughs> why do I, <coughs> excuse me, why do I have to say this? Because there are some groups of Christians who take the view that the gifts of tongues mentioned in Acts is different from that mentioned by Apostle Paul that occurred in the Church of Corinth. See, there are two different things. That's the view they take. Now, those who hold to this view then teach that speaking in tongues mentioned in Acts is that which proves that the person is saved. In effect, they teach that if a person does not speak in tongues, such a person is not saved. Although, there is no record that all those who were saved in the day of Pentecost after Peter's sermon spoke in tongues. Now this notwithstanding, we have shown though that there is really no difference between tongues mentioned in Acts and that mentioned by Apostle Paul. No difference. If you understand that, then there's only one one concept of gifts of tongues, uh, speaking in tongues. Anyway, fourth, the subsequent mention of speaking in tongues in Acts do not refer to any specific language spoken by those who exercise the gift or those who had its exercise. So the second reference to speaking in tongues in the, it's really in the passage we cited previously, and which is Acts chapter 10, verses 45 and 46. Go to Acts chapter 10. We looked at 46, but let's pick up verses 45 and 46. Acts chapter 10, verses 45 and 46. It is the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they had then spoken in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Now see, we should know that Apostle Peter certainly spoke to Colonus and those gathered in his house in a common language of that time. Otherwise, they wouldn't know what he's talking. There's a common language that they use at that time. Thus, when the believers 
who accompanied Peter, heard those to whom Peter preached the gospel speak in tongues. It must have been that they spoke in a language those present could not identify with, or they uttered some unintelligible words as to state that they heard the people speaking tongues. Now the same situation applied in the third reference of speaking in tongues by those who responded to the gospel message through false preaching in the passage we're against cited, which is Acts chapter 19, verse 6. Then we just need to listen because I've cited it. You have it already in your notes. Let's just listen. Again, it says, When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And so we are not really informed of anyone hearing or understanding what the twelve men involved in speaking in tongues said in, the, in Ephesus. However, the fact that they all uh, spoke in tongues and prophesied would suggest some form of ecstatic occurrence, especially as we have no mention of what they prophesied. So, remember when I explained prophecy, that originally has that element of ecstatic. Now, so Luke, the writer of the account, must have witnessed something that enabled him to report that the men, that the men spoke in tongues and prophesied. What he uh, observed is something ecstatic that would have caused him to do that. So that's the fourth fact that we need to remember. Fifth, Apostle Paul implies that tongue could refer to human language and spiritual language. Since he mentions speaking in tongues along uh, angelic language, as we read in his conditional statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1. It reads, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Of course, we do not know what language angels speak. But for sure, they communicate with each other and with God. Now that we do not know of their language does not mean that it is not real. Now I see the, the reference to tongues of angels should be taken as real means of communication. Since the food of, uh, that is real, given to Israel, called the food of angels, is real. 
as we read in Acts and in Psalm 78 verse 25. Psalm 78 verse 25. Psalm 78 verse 25. He reads, Psalm 78 verse 25 reads, Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. So, what was given to Israel, as we're studying on Wednesday night, is described as bread of angels. Now, so the point of referencing this passage, though, is simply to say that there must be tongues of, of angels that is real. As the food Israel ate in the desert was real. So anyway, there must be such a thing then as angelic language, although we do not know what it is. Now interestingly, the idea of angelic language is also referenced in the non-canonical book called The Testament of Job. There's a non-canonical book that is, we don't recognize it as it's inspired uh, as a part of the same way as we take our Bible, but they do contain some good information. So there it talks about the issue of language of angels. And I'm going to read for you. You don't have a, unless you go and research and you're able to get it. It's not that easy to find. But the Testament of Job. And I'm going to quote chapter 48 of it, verses 1 and 3. This is what it reads. The Testament of Job, chapter 48, verse 1 of it reads, Thus, when the one called Hemera arose, she wrapped around her own spring, just as her father said. And she took on another heart, no longer minded toward earthly things. But she spoke ecstatically in the angelic dialect. That's angelic language. They say she spoke in angelic dialect, angelic language. Sending up a hymn to God. In accord with the hymn, uh, hymenic uh, style of the angels. And as she spoke ecstatically, she allowed quote, the spirit to be inscribed on her garment. That's what is given in this uh, non canonical book of the testament of Job but the key thing here is that he mentions of angelic diet I mean dialect which is language and hymenic uh, or hymn according to the style of angels so anyway we should recognize then that there must be the angelic language by which the angels communicate with each other that we know nothing about since it is of no use to us, though, because 
knowing that they exist, so what good does it do for us? We don't, we don't go, we're not going to use it. They don't communicate to us in uh, angelic language. If an angel comes to communicate to you, he'll speak to you the language you know. That's when you think about it. When those two men came, the two angels that distressed Sodom, they communicated with Lot in a language that he, that he uh, used. Same with Abraham. So the point is, an angel is not going to speak to a person using an angelic language. But it does exist. In any case then, these five factors that we have stated enable us then to state that tongue as used by Apostle Paul should be understood to refer to both a foreign language and a spiritual language. That when the Apostle used the word tongue, we should recognize it in the sense of both a spiritual language and uh, a foreign language, depending on the situation when the Holy Spirit grants the manifestation of the gift of speaking in tongues. Now this interpretation then is one that takes into consideration all that we have considered about tongues so as to avoid any conflict in the scripture. In other words, what I'm really telling you is this. What we do normally is if you are studying something like tongues, for example, then you have to go to everywhere in the scripture where that concept is given. And then you put them all together. Since it's the word of God, they cannot conflict. So you must find a way. If there are some places that seem to conflict, you must find a way to resolve them. Knowing that God's word does not conflict. It is our human uh, understanding. So what I said is, based on all these five factors, that's why I could say, Tongues must refer to both angelic, I mean spiritual language, and foreign language. Now be that then as it may, the Greek was then that we have considered in the phrase of 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10, when it said different kinds of tongues enable us to state that the eighth spiritual gift referred to literally as kinds of tongues or in the, words of, in the words of the NIV, speaking in, in different kinds of tongues, refers to the special ability the Holy Spirit gives an individual to speak a language the individual has never known that may or may not be known by the hearers. This, that's very important. What I said, it is that special ability. The Holy Spirit gives an individual to speak a language. The individual has never known that land that may or may not be known by the hearers. Now, the, the gift does not necessarily mean that a language spoken be intelligible to the audience. Only that they realize it is not their own language. That's all it is. So you see, as we have already stated, only in the first reference of speaking in tongues, in the day of Pentecost, are we informed that people heard the disciples speak about God's work in their various languages 
or the languages of the audience. So in any case, those who spoke in tongues in Colonel's house, when Apostle Peter preached the gospel to them, there is no mention of anyone understanding what was said. Only that those with Peter recognized it was in their language. Now this was also the case of those who received uh, the Holy Spirit in Ephesus when Apostle Paul laid his hands on them. The point then is that gift of tongues involves speaking in a language that a speaker has never learned and those who hear it may never understand what the speaker says since it may sound to them something to be a gibberish because they don't know what they're talking. So, it will sound very strange. Now, I know uh, I can, if I, if I just go to a passage now, in the language that I was born with, you will know what I'm talking about. So that's kind of thing. So this is the thing that uh, we, we're looking at. So the point is that this uh, gift of tongues then involves speaking in a language that the uh, speaker has never learned and that those who hear it may never understood what the speaker says because it sounds foreign to them or, or gibberish. Now we will say more though about this gift later as we examine what the apostle taught about it in the 14th chapter. Like That's where we have the details. But now we're just going to establish that it exists. Now meanwhile then, our reason for stating that those who hear the one with the gift of song speak may not understand the speaker is the cause of the ninth spiritual gifts mentioned next that we will get to at the right time. But let me comment in a general way regarding this gift of speaking in tongues. Just a general comment. Now there's no way we can be certain how the gift functioned in current or how the church in Corinth carried out its worship as such. All we know for one thing is it's not like we do today. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Now, so we can speculate that there was a fascination in that church with the gifts of speaking in tongues that caused uh, as much problems to the uh, Corinthians as it is today. As we've already stated. That's all we can say. Now the gift must have caused those who had it to feel somewhat superior to others that the Holy Spirit had to correct any misconception or any misperception of the gift through the apostle. In other words, we're going to see, yeah, we'll see it when we get to the 14th chapter. There's some people's heads that is swelling. They, they think they are giant Christians because they, they had the gift, and others didn't. 
So the point again we want to convey is that it is not necessary to know exactly how the gift was used in Corinth since it is difficult to determine although we have statements by the Apostle Paul that enable us to have ideas of what happened in the church in Corinth regarding this gift. Our concern should not be so much as to determine how the gift was used in Corinth as it is for us to recognize that the gift exists and there is no indication that it has been withdrawn from the church. Although some contend that that is the case. In other words, some say it has been withdrawn. It no longer exists. All I'm saying, as we're going to see when we go through this, there's no biblical passage that actually says that. Uh, the passage in Acts, that, uh, I mean, First Corinthians chapter 13, when we get there, you see, it's not what people think it is. Now, anyway, as we have uh, been doing there in our consideration of some of these spiritual gifts that the apostle gave in the passage that we are studying, let me refer to some reports that suggest that in our modern day that such gift exists or that the Holy Spirit manifested it to the church of Christ. So let me give you some little historical facts. It is reported that there was an outbreak of the gift of tongues among other spiritual gifts with the Huguenots who were French Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries who followed the teaching of the great theologian as we use the word John Calvin. These Huguenots, they were following his teaching. Now they were persecuted by the French Catholic government so that some of them fled their country to other parts of Europe, United States, and Africa. Now according to Bushnell, about 40 years uh, after the appearance of Gift of Tongues, in uh, the same thing appeared among the Catholic or the Jesuit population of, of Paris. So the gift was observed with George Fox and his group known as the Friends, the Friends, that groups called the Friends. Now, record also indicates that in the 19th century, a North Carolina uh, Presbyterian congregation manifested tongue speech during the summer of 1801. Now, while related phenomenon may have occurred in the 1801 Cane uh, Ridge Revival in Kentucky. Now, early in the 20th century, there were reports of activities of speaking in tongues among some group 
of Christians. Now the point though is that there have been various groups of Christians that certainly experience the gift of tongues. There's no reason to state in an unequivocal manner that the gifts are seized, since there's no direct statement in the scripture to that effect, as we'll note at the appropriate terminal study of the spiritual gifts as given by Apostle Paul. So with this comment, we proceed to the next spiritual gift, the ninth one, and that we do by God's grace next Sunday. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet. If you die now, you go straight to hell. Because you don't have life. God loves you. That's why you're still alive. And he's giving you this message. The message of hope. The message that he loves you. He is a God. A loving God. But he's also a just God. So a loving God did something for sin. At the same thing, a just God has a punishment for sin that we call hell. So those who do not believe in him, they spend eternity in hell, the lake of fire, where it is awfully difficult for all eternity to suffer. It's a tremendous suffering. So, God in his love doesn't want you to go there. Because he prepared it for those who rebel against him. The best way he did that, so you going to go there, is to show you his love in action by sending the second member of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. He took on a human form, came to this world that is filled with sins, and he lived, taught, did miracles. Everything to prove that he is the son of God. His love is beyond measure. Can I comprehend it? Because here is the one that has the power to kill all those who persecuted him. He demonstrated his power when they came to arrest him when it was time for him to return to heaven. And those men who came with clubs and so forth he only asked me a simple question. Who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. As soon as he said that, he identified himself really as God. And they hid the crowd. But he gave them permission to arrest him. Because if he didn't want them to arrest him, he just keeps saying the same thing. But he gave them permission to arrest him. And they took him, made a mock trial of him. And after trying him, they handed him over to the Romans to crucify him. And when he was determined he would be crucified, he was then handed over to the Roman soldiers to torture him. Tear him when he was being tortured. 
they hit him, buffeted him. Each time they hit him, he was thinking about you. His love for you was so captivating that he didn't pay too much attention, really, to the pain he was going through. He didn't say a word, he didn't complain. And they laid him, gave him the cross, so he carried to Golgotha where they crucified him. On his way, he staggered and fell. Somebody else had to help him carry that cross to Golgotha where they laid him down, no doubt tied him, and began to nail him. Drove those nails through his hands, causing some tremendous pain. Yet, he endured it all. And they put him up on that cross. And the people began to taunt him and say, If you are who you claim you are, come out and we'll believe you. Come down from that tree. Come down. He could have done that. But then if he did that, all of us would have wound up in hell. They just see his love. He came to help us. We rejected him. He didn't give up. He didn't throw off his son and say, okay, this people don't want it. Let them go born in hell. He didn't do that. He had such love. It was a compelling love. That no matter what we did, his goal was to redeem us. And so he endured all that. Until he never said a word, until the last three hours, when my sins and your sins were being laid on the Son of God, the pain of being separated from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, that was so painful that he let out in that cry, Eli, Eli, Lama Shemakatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What are you going to believe? Then the Bible said, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. So if you believe that he came for you, died, was buried, rose again the third day for your sins. If you believe that, you receive eternal life. So trust in him and escape God's coming wrath judgment in hell. So that is his offer to you. And you don't have anything to offer him back than faith. In the sense that he gives you to. To trust, to believe that he died for you. When you do that, you are ensured of being with him forever and never, ever spending eternity in the lake of fire. To believe it and be saved. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will challenge us in the things that we are studying to begin to understand the gifts that you have given to the church. And put them in, in proper perspective. This is a request in Christ's name.